So uh, you got to forgive me. Um, uh, Gray, is it you by yourself on the podcast or is it other? Um, I'm the host of the podcast. I have a couple people helping me produce it, but I'm the main host. Okay. Well, that's nice. I mean, I'm kind of envious, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm the producer, the executive producer, the, the, the sound guy, the, the, edit, the editor, the <laughs> the writer. I've been, I've been trying to figure <laughs> yeah. figure it all out. I've essentially had like two friends who've been like, "We'll help like uh, read over your scripts and stuff." And also because it was a part of my senior thesis for the first like launching part of it, I've had like help with the content from my thesis advisor. Okay. But pretty uh, much everything after that, it's just pulling from what's going on. Okay, so uh, I guess we'll, we'll start off with you. So uh, I want to w- welcome everyone to Cat the Hunter's podcast. Thank you so much. We have a couple of viewers here, so thank you so much. And um, I want to start off with, uh, we'll start off with Gray. You were already talking, t- so tell us a little bit about yourself, your podcast, and everything else. Yeah, okay. Um, hello, I'm Gray. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I am a black, non-binary, um, uh, disabled, disability justice and healing justice uh, activist and organizer. Um, And my podcast, Black Tea Speaks, is essentially what I like to call a radical lifestyle podcast. It's sort of mixing um, aspects of like bringing activist work in in black and brown and indigenous feminist praxis into a sort of um, more accessible lens with including aspects of like self-help and self-development and through the lens of um, through the lens of understanding systems of oppression. Um, and it's a community of practice that is both guided by and rooted in the voices of black, queer, trans, indigenous, and brown um, people of color. Um, and just um, a little tidbit about me. Um, that, excuse me, um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is also rooted in um, practices through gender and women's studies. So there's aspects of bringing in the academic realm to um, the kind of layman's like com- conversational aspect. Okay, very good. Uh, that's kind of a mouthful there. I, I could never remember. Uh... <laughs> All that, so I'm not even going to try to repeat any of that. So, but thank Sorry. you, thank you. <laughs> no, listen, that's that's just what you are, is what and what you believe and do, and all that kind of stuff. It's just a mouthful. So it's it's neither positive nor negative. So, uh, so brother TL, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and podcast? Sure. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Good evening, everybody. My name is TL Hopkins. I represent one half of the Opinionated Black Dads podcast. Uh, my co-host couldn't be here today. Um, Essentially, our podcasts are two middle-aged, black, opinionated men who talk about current events, uh, also race, uh, and we look at uh, highlighting entrepreneurs, movers and shakers, uh, politicians, mentors, things of that nature. Um, And we've been doing this for the past couple of months. Very nice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Nurse Tasha. Tosh. Yeah, either. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Latasha Sandage. I go by Nurse Tosh. 
I am one half of the Conscious Sedation Podcast. My co-host could not be here either. Her name is Brian. Shout out to her. Um, we are two nurses who basically talk about the nuances and things that we see in the healthcare system as it relates to moving around as a black person in the healthcare system. And um, we focus on education, empowerment, and we're entertaining just a little bit. <laughs> um, we try really hard to shed light on the fact that the healthcare business is still business. And so it's important for us to be able to advocate for ourselves and know how to move through that system without feeling like um, we are less than or kind of settling into this inferiority complex that Black people in America typically lead with. Um, so we speak to all of those issues and talk about how they affect our health, mental health. We've talked about financial health, all of the things on our podcast. Very nice. So once again, thank you to you and thank you to all of the guests here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Really, really appreciate it. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, are we getting distracted? So uh, in reference to that, I am um, going to be focusing on the events, current events that we're all living with, dealing with the pandemic and obviously the George Floyd protests, which I believe go beyond George Floyd. So I'd like to get each and every one of your opinion uh, about um, you know, what you thought about when you, when we went through George Floyd and I would include Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and a number of other persons. So, uh, we'll start with you, Nurse Tasha. What, what were your thoughts when you heard about? Um, I was heartbroken again and again and again. Um, I constantly see myself when I hear about these stories. And if not me personally, I see a family member or a loved one or a really close friend going through um this this um system <laughs> this oppression it's just this injustice all of the things that um the negative words that you can put to it it makes me feel um viscerally affected i i consider myself an empath and so for that reason i try really hard not to watch any of the videos um, I'm interested in the stories. I'm interested in hearing about the names and they make me sad just the same, but I will not watch the videos. I feel like they cause trauma, um, secondary trauma. And I am trying to protect myself and my own mental health in that way. I feel like it's important to still highlight the stories and things like that to move forward. So when I heard about Amat Arbery, which that happened here in Georgia, I'm in Atlanta, um, I was just sickened. You know, I'm tired, <laughs> worn out, um, cried out. And I, you know, just thought about my man, my honey and my baby and all of those things. So I, I immediately poured myself into the spaces that are those people's family members, their loved ones. And I can't imagine what they must be feeling. I'm enraged. I, you know, have to shut down social media sometimes, and then really focus on practicing self-care. Because otherwise, it's difficult. It's just difficult. Uh, TL, what were your thoughts? So when that first occurred, uh, I think uh, Mart Arbery was before George Floyd. Um, and I did watch the video. And when I watched the video, the reason why is I'm I looked at it. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to see what other people would see when they watched that video. 
you know, us as as African-Americans, we're going to look at it a little bit differently than someone else uh, of another race. They'll, they may look at it at a distance and say, you know, yeah, well, maybe he deserved it. Maybe he ran around, you know, the truck and something happened that we couldn't see. So, you know, maybe that was to occur. When George Floyd happened, I was, I became numb. And I also had to become numb. And the reason I had to become numb was one important portion that has been spoken about a lot in his death, which was when he was calling out for his mother. And we talked about this on, on my podcast as well. And I told my host, I said, my co-host, I said, you know, and I'm, I'm a, a spiritual person and I've been around death a little bit too much sometimes. But I said, when he was calling out for his mother, he saw his mother. And his mother was about to carry him to the other side. And that's what shook me. That's what shook me to the core. When everything else began to happen, when the protests began to happen and the disturbances, I won't call them riots. I call them disturbances. When those began to happen, I immediately wanted to understand the rationale behind it because it looks similar, look like things we've seen before. But more importantly, and, and we may talk about this as we go on, how it could be used against us. So in essence, I looked at all this. I was incredibly sensitized to it as I normally am, because as a as a as a black man in this country, you have no choice but to be sensitized to it. But at the same time, I was numb. Because I've seen it before. Mm. Gray, what do you what were your thoughts? Um. So for me, having grown up really, a lot of my formative years being around a lot of these high profile um, instances of police brutality, um, for me, there's kind of almost a habitual response that initially happens of like feeling tapped into this collective trauma and collective outrage and anger followed by this sort of uh, sim like similarly empathic exhaustion. Um, I think that it's gotten to a point where it almost feels cyclical, especially for, for me, for some reason, there's something about the summer and just the past, the past, like, I would say five or six years, there's, there's something about like black death in the summer that I've just come to associate, especially because I think not not to say that like police brutality has not been an issue for generations but the the sort of high profile and like constant social media connectivity to it for me in my formative years has been a really defining feature so it's felt almost familiar um in a way and my initial reaction to it i think or at least I think what my initial reaction to it that might have been different this time as opposed to other times has been sort of, I'm coming from a place as a trauma survivor um, who's worked, who's been working on my trauma recently of understanding the sort of the overlay between historic trauma, intergenerational trauma and my own interpersonal trauma and having the tools to navigate that interpersonally helped me sort of catch this balance between the desire to numb and step away 
and also the desire to be tapped in and to also look at where I hold agency as a black activist um, in kind of sort of creating this, this change. So I sort of didn't let myself stay in the sorrow of it for too long before actually like mobilizing, making my podcast. That was part of one of the like defining features is having seen these like sort of high profile instances happening and feeling like I had no agency in the matter to create any sort of change. Um, especially as someone not always able to go out and protest. Um, so that that's kind of was my initial reaction that I would say this time, I feel like I'd been really fed up and moved to action. So uh, as, as a younger person, I would assume that you're in your early 20s, having just graduated from college or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what I mean, I, I really want to try to hone in what your thoughts were, because uh, I can tell I, I don't know whose uh, beard is grayer, mine or TL's. <laughs> but uh, so we're, we're you know, we're, we're middle aged guys, essentially. And I won't. I won't uh, have Nurse Tasha there uh, throw stuff at me, um, but but you know I would assume that we're all just a slight bit older than you. So so what is your thoughts as a younger person having to watch this? Now I can say that I, you know I didn't grow up in the '60s, and I, I would assume that TL didn't either. Probably probably my no. age, right? So we missed that portion. Lo and behold, in 1992 is really when the next thing started blowing off with the, with the Rodney King stuff. So what is your thoughts as a young person in your 20s? I know my daughter is. 22 and she's like what is going on so i like to hear your thoughts specifically about a younger person trying to grow up in the world and as you mentioned the past few summers are going on with this what, what how, do, how do you process that um so for me i think i've been fortunate enough to have a lot of my formative years to be uh in these in these sort of like like queer, femme of color, healing spaces and activist organizing spaces, which have been very, I think very grounding for me and navigating the constant tragedy and kind of being immersed in the language of trauma and the language of activism and the language of, of like navigating through oppression. Um, so I think in my experience, one thing that I think, and I was talking with one of my friends about this, who's even a little bit younger than me, that something that I think has really marked my generation's experience is a constant exposure to traumatizing content. And I think in my own life, that has definitely merged with the interpersonal traumas that I face in such a way that it becomes almost indistinguishable. And for me and a lot of my peers around me, there is this sort of sense of not being able to distinguish the kind of like interpersonal, like, how do I explain? Like the interpersonal, like, like metaphoric rubbing salt in a wound of trauma. And then also that being kind of um, magnified through the societal trauma. And I definitely feel like for younger folks, and I think that this is also part of why we've seen the mobilization that we have seen in my generation particularly, is there's only, I think there's only so much trauma and like so much um, violence that folks can take before they get pushed to a breaking point. And I think, because these traumas happen at such formative years for us, a lot of us are at our breaking point. But I also think that 
we have also had an influx of more like leftist politics, more um, more discussions around some of these, like some of the more radical uh, queer black trans thinkers that came before us, I think also plays a role into like how we've come to understand and grapple with the world around us. Uh, Brother T.L., as a, as a person a little bit older, having experienced this, I mean, I, I'd like to attack it from that angle too. I mean, I know that you talked about, uh, you talked about what you thought and heard, but as, as a person, as I mentioned, probably roughly the same age there, man. I mean, we missed the 60s. We were young kids, assumingly. I was, I was, I was 19 when uh, we saw uh, Rodney King. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? So I have to agree that to to a certain extent, we have become traumatized by all of this. It's actually in a very strange way become normalized for people as well. And that's incredibly dangerous. Um, the fact that that you and I can say that in the 90s, we saw something like this. And I can go a little bit further back, not quite with such um with, with, with such intensity, but I grew up in Philadelphia. So I was privy to, you know, all of what happened to the move organization from, from being a young child until the bombing of their home in the eighties when I was a teenager. Um, that was shocking. Then uh, the Rodney King incident was shocking, but as we've gone on, as time has gone on, everything that we see is, is coming at such a pace that it, in, a, in a strange way, some people can normalize it now. Um, and that's concerning to me because I have a nine-year-old son and we're beginning to have the conversation about police brutality and race. And it was something I was trying to hold off on, but he came to me and started asking me the questions. So we started the conversation. So I'm looking at it through the lens of a nine-year-old too, who's looking at this now and noticing this is a problem. And why is it a problem, dad? And I'm looking at it as his father going, dude, you have absolutely no idea how long this has been going on. This precedes me. This precedes your grandfather. But it's, be it's become somewhat normalized to a point where, pe in my opinion, some people's reactions have also become automated and normalized to a point that everything can be calculated and someone's move is already known and their reaction is already known and and when those things occur the general population can then craft how they want to respond to things knowing a plus b equals c and we always know that if we do a they're going to respond to b which equals c and we can continue to do whatever that is going forward yeah, so that last point is really, really touching. Um, the part of, about the normalization of this, right? A plus B equals C. The normalization of this, people get upset, they get mad, they throw a ta temper tantrum for a little bit. I want to ask Nurse Tosh, why, why now? Why, why, what is there anything different about today, about now? Yeah, uh, a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, seriously, I think that, um, like Grace said, her generation is, uh, I want to curse, but I'm not, 
if listen, you, you can FCC FCC is not listening. Okay. okay. Thank you. Um, they are with the shit. They are with the shit. All Absolutely. of them. You know what I'm saying? And they are tired of watching their predecessors sit on their hands and take the politically correct route. It's time out for that. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. So everything shut down. No one can go anywhere. Everyone's afraid of getting COVID-19. You know, all of these things are working together to create this explosion that we saw. And I'm with UTL. I don't call it riot. I call it protest. It is what it is. And I'm okay with the destruction of property. Burn it all down. Burn it all down. None of it belongs to us anyway. My black neighborhood is intact. Okay? So I feel like when you live in a capitalist society that values property over people, it's time to shut it down. And just like Gray, like for people like me, I'm a mom of a toddler. So I can't get out in the streets. My man was out there. I'm like, okay, uh, be particular. But I can't get out in the street. So my activism looks different from the people who are out in the streets doing things. I'm a nurse in labor and delivery where, you know, in America, black women are three to four, probably more times more likely to die during childbirth. That's where my activism takes place. You know, I educate. I'm a childbirth educator. I'm a doula. That's where my activism takes place. And so it's like it was time. It was time. So let's dig into the heart of this here. Um, so we talked about the protests, people not on the street, protests, riots. There's obviously a difference in what's going on. <laughs> um, so let me ask you, what's being served by this, right? Uh, we know MLK said, you know, the riot is the language of the unheard or something to that effect. What What is it that we can expect to come from this? I'll start off with you, Greg. A younger person, you're out there being a social activist. What is it you expect to change? So I think what Tosh mentioned, um, it's a critical piece that I don't see a lot of people talking about is the intersections of capitalism and and systems of oppression and police brutality. And in particular, this current moment of COVID did something that I don't think has really happened in our recent history, which is slowed down the capitalist system. And it's also part of the reason why the president is currently trying to get it reset kind of going because what I think that what happens is when you have people going on this loop of just work to survive, there is this inability to fully engage. Like people are going through the news and, and having it constantly in our face, but there isn't a moment to sit down and stop and then also organize. I wasn't surprised by this happening, simply because I saw a microcosm of it happen a couple of weeks before with my college. Not with police brutality, but when COVID happened, as all of the colleges were um, essentially like kicking students off campus and all sorts of things, um, there was an issue on campus. We have, uh, my college happens to be like a very well endowed college and also it's a college with a lot of first gen low income students who rely on the college for secure housing, food security, all these other things. And long story short, it ended up with a bunch of homeless students being denied housing or being denied able to stay on campus. And for the first time in my four years of being there, because 
we are a super activist oriented college. Like everyone's protesting for some reason all the time. But because all the college is at Pomona College, I, I kid you not, there was I saw part of a consortium. There was one week where all five colleges were protesting different things. Anyway, um, for the first time, because classes had stopped, I saw the organizing of, for students get get stuff done fast. As in, we shut everything down. We got news outlets putting media fire under our college, and all of the students who didn't have housing were suddenly able to stay. And that kind of ticked off to me that something was different about having the slowdown from COVID plus these different forms of injustice coming together and making it obvious. I think a lot of people and not just black folks, but I think even a lot of like working class white folks are realizing that like when, when they were like, you know, let grandma and grandpa die for to bring back the economy, people realize that a capitalist system does not believe in our humanity. And I think that that has been getting more into the mainstream it is definitely way more present in my generation that I, I know of a lot of people. And I think that has been the, one of the critical differences in this movement and how much it's getting done. Uh, well said. T.O. Yeah, you bring up you bring up an excellent point. And I think what what's occurred is the your generation and you know the you know some generation before you has had a very adverse relationship with the capitalist system whereby my generation we embraced it to a certain degree there was some embracing of it okay but you your generation your generation before was thrown headlong into what you thought was going to be the American dream via the capitalistic system. And they threw you in the mud. <laughs> they literally threw you in the mud and said, well, you're lazy. You don't know what you're doing. You know, we didn't do it this way. Just, just do it our way and everything will be fine. And what we didn't notice as that generation was things were different and we weren't willing to see that. Um, so when all this occurred and I, and I've said it before, you know, we did an episode on, on, you know, everything that was going on with, you know, Armand Aubrey and, and George Floyd. And what occurred was I even said something's different here. Something's different. And if you looked at the demographic of nationwide of who was protesting, it wasn't just us, which made me realize two things. One, race as a construct is slowly being broken down. Slowly. <laughs> it's not it's not running a yeah. it's not running a road race here. But more importantly, there was that same intersection that you talked about. The intersection of, hey, everyone's been talking about, you know, black America's been talking about this level of oppression for so long. We've turned a deaf ear to it. But I'm starting to feel a little bit of that pressure. Maybe this is what they're talking about. Maybe this is what they mean. You know what? I think this is what this is about and I don't feel comfortable about it. And a lot of people took to the streets that, and the, you know, the, the, you know, the COVID situation helped, you know, kind of put a plug on this and, you know, that, that cork really went off um, when all this occurred and, and it just looks different. It feels different. Um, or I should say in my mind, I'll say this, it, it felt different in the beginning. I'll say that it kind of feels the same now. May I also add something or no? Go ahead. Yeah. 
Um, I also think like adding on to that, another piece that I don't really see mentioned a lot, but I've noticed just through like my own studies of in general women's studies, is that I think also there have been generations of work that's going on behind the scenes from these sort of like radical queer black and brown activists who've set the groundwork for these things like transformative justice, prison abolition, who and who sort of um, there's, I think Adrienne Marie Brown talks about it, where she says like the sort of transformative strategy only works when you're able to utilize shocks to the system um, to create change, but that requires a certain level of groundwork that I think has been happening behind the scenes, not necessarily in the mainstream, that I think we're also starting to see the fruits of that labor. So I think it's less of even like, this is springing up out of the new and more like there's been a lot of people working for decades on this. Nurse Tosh, I want to ask you, um, what role does the media play, if if any? I mean, are they kind of hyping this up or or what? Uh, yeah, the media plays a big role. I've always believed that we see what they want us to see, and we don't see what they don't want us to see unless you go and seek other um, streams of media and news. So media plays a big role, but I will say that um, social media plays a bigger role now and like YouTube because people have the ability to blast their stories or blast the stories that are important to particular communities, especially black communities, um, without censorship. And so we can say, all right, the news is showing this, but this is what's really going on. And so big media networks have to contend with that. So I usually hear people talk about or kind of pit Fox against CNN or, you know, something like that because Fox is the liar allegedly and CNN is not when in reality are they all owned by the same people so who's really telling the truth you don't really know you know so the media is always going to paint a picture um differently and sway it to what they want the masses to respond to so you know like I said social media is a major force and not to that because you know, news streams will play a snippet of the Ahmaud Arbery incident. But then weeks later, you know, after investigation or whatever, the entire video comes out. And then the video of him just walking around this house comes out. And all of these things, you know, the media is then scrambling, trying to be like, oh, wait, this isn't our narrative <laughs> that we wanted to go with. Now we have to, you know, play cleanup with that. Mm. Uh, Tio, in keeping what we where we want to go with this, the Confederate statues, uh, Christopher Columbus statues, monuments, flags—is any of that part of or continuation of these protests? What are your thoughts about that? So, to answer your question, are they? Is it a continuation? Yes. My thoughts on it usually go against what most people think. And here's what I think. Should the statues be taken down? Should the monuments be changed? Yes and no. Here's what I mean by that. So simple ones like Christopher Columbus or uh, Robert E. Lee, things that can be moved should be moved. 
Okay. Should they be taken down for simply because it's a visual representation of the Confederacy, which by the way, I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) The Confederacy lost the war. They lost the war. So we're in, in a very strange way. And I don't want to beleaguer it, but in a very strange way, we're celebrating the very people that lost the war to continue slavery. Okay. So should they be taken down? Yes. Should they be forgotten? No. And here's what I mean. There's some that are permanent stone mountain. We were talking about that earlier prior to us uh, starting the, the, the recording stone mountains, a stone structure. So unless you're literally defacing it by blowing it up with explosives, it's going to be hard to take down. So should there be some sort of educational component attached to that site where people understand the history then and the history now and why it is an offensive or isolating, alienating monument? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's the reason why I think there should be the conversation for it. Should there be multiple museums put together? for the statues of Columbus and Robert E. Lee. And it, yeah, absolutely. Here's why. The conversation needs to have, uh, excuse me, the conversation needs to happen so people understand the context. But more importantly, by putting them away in some little, you know, container or, you know, in some warehouse somewhere to be forgotten, then treads very, very, very heavily on First Amendment rights, which is the freedom of speech. A lot of people, and this is where I get into arguments with people, <laughs> but when you start to tread on that in one area, what's not to say in another area, it, it can continue. Because remember, we have to look at what's going on. We have to look at how this could affect us. And this is where we need to look at through the horizon and say, okay, if we take this action over here, what's the reaction over here? And to tear them down, I'm not in agreement. To take them down, yeah, absolutely. To have a conversation about them in some some framework that makes sense, absolutely, because that continues to uphold First Amendment rights. That's my thought. A lot of people disagree on me on that. <laughs> uh, well, I actually don't disagree with you, but let's go over to Stone uh-huh. Mountain, Georgia there and uh, go up to Tasha there. <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, you probably drive down the street, have to look over to your left there, and there, there's that big. So yeah, it's there. Um, I feel like we should preserve the monuments and things like that in a museum that is um, centered with black people writing the stories about them, <laughs> and that's the only way. I'm I'm for real. I think that's the only way that the true story will be told because all of these things are so layered and entrenched in um, the DNA of this country. Once you start picking at one thing, you have to pick at something else. Like they had taken down the Columbus statue or something like that in Columbus, Ohio. And so I'm tongue in cheek and made a comment like, so they gonna change the name of the city or not? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so that's the type of thing that this makes me think of. When the monuments and stuff are coming down, Okay, great. What now? Are you, we rewriting history books? Are we telling true stories about what happened 
Like, and who's who's in charge of telling the story? So when we erect these museums, let's just have some blackity black folks make all of the little signs that go under the monuments or next to them to tell the true story about what they represented and what they meant. Okay, well, some blackity black folks, not just the black <laughs> folks, the black yeah. black folks. Um, so yeah, so uh, Gray, I want to get your opinion about that. What are your thoughts about uh, about the Confederate? Um, I have a couple thoughts. The like, I guess at the core of a lot of my thoughts centers around this idea that like, what has history shown actually has made movement. I think that in a lot of ways, our commitment to sometimes playing by the rule book fails to understand that the rule book was never made for us. And so as much as like the pacifist in me, the nonviolent person in me wants to believe in a way of, and, and like the, the like, con, like I'm conflict resolution person interpersonally, wants to believe in a way of having a discussion about it and all these other things. I also have an understanding of the ways in which order and regulation fundamentally function to invisibilize white supremacy and to perpetuate it. So I think that in a lot of ways, the question isn't really whether or not it should be teared down. And also it's not just our history. We are also on stolen indigenous land. We are also settlers on this land and understanding that our oppression and our needs are also tied in a different way with indigenous and first nations peoples on this land. And so I think that it's a very complicated negotiation. And I don't always think a negotiation looks like, I like, I think that there needs to be a conversation had, but I don't think it's having it with the white people who constructed the statues or maintaining them up as property. Um, and that's kind of where I stand on it in the sense that like, that like white supremacy fundamentally functions by defending property over the lives and histories of people. And I don't think that we need statues to understand that history. I do think that like the idea of like having it somewhere in a place that is like run and centered by the people most affected is something that is, I, I would think would be very useful, but I think that that's secondary to these other conversations we also need to be having with other marginalized folks, particularly indigenous people as well. So speaking of indigenous persons, uh, so the uh, Washington Arskins are now going to change their name. I'll go to you for this one, T.L. Assume you're a sports fan. I'm just assuming that because you're a man. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, so, uh, and so I'd like to get your thoughts about that what are your thoughts about that um the the Antimima wants to change their logo and a couple other brands that and this is what i'm talking about be, about being distracted is any of that going to matter and that's why i want to ask you all before what do we want and is this other stuff taking away from that so i'll, I'll go to you first Tio. so i'll preface it by saying this i think there has been an over emphasis on trying to correct wrongs in the past six weeks. Um, if you look at, and I'll just add Juneteenth into this. If you look at Juneteenth, all of a sudden Juneteenth and corporate America became this very big thing. And, you know, folks were getting the day off. They were getting to leave early. There was these celebrations. Um, you know, the blackout 
Tuesday became a lot larger than anybody thought it would be. Um, the support of Black Lives Matter, you know, and I'm going to put quotes in, you know, quotes around that. The support in quotes by corporate America happened as well. So I think it was a byproduct. So the 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 Washington Redskins changing their name long overdue. I think it's something that needed to happen. Um, I think there's conversation and I'm not entirely um, sure about it, but I believe there's some conversation with the, the native population actually about the name. And for some people, it's not in, in that community. It's not offensive. So there's there's a debate about that right now. The Aunt Jemima scenario, I think, is a good thing. Um, I think they tried very early on to kind of get away from its original uh, branding. And if you look at the original branding of Aunt Jemima, it was way worse than the than, you know, the perm lady that was on the box. Um, but it had a historical connotation. So to get rid of it, not a bad thing. Um, but there's been a wholesale kind of erasure of sorts that's going on. And my fear in that is when something else happens whereby we need to really push the envelope, someone's going to just put their arms up and go, well, look at all the stuff we did over here. We got rid of Aunt Jemima for you. You're not happy. We supported Black Lives Matter. You're not happy. We dealt with Juneteenth. We didn't even know what it was. You're still not happy. And I think that's where, again, that's where the conversation of A plus B equals C kind of comes into play. Um, is it a good thing to get rid of some of these icons? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we need to be seen differently. We're, we're very myopic. We're, we're always viewed in a very myopic um, lane. When it comes to our culture, and we're much more varied than that. Uh, Nurse Tash, what are your thoughts about that? Um, it just all feels very inauthentic to me. Um, I feel like we are not having the same conversations, and the people, the decision makers, who are saying let's do these different things, like the Aunt Jemima thing, and you know stuff like that. They either are tone deaf to what black people are really saying. We want and demand in this country or there are no black people in the room or there aren't the right black people in the room because that's not change. Like um, for the Black Lives Matter murals and stuff that was popping out, I was like, excuse me, who asked for a mural? <laughs> who asked for paint on the street? We're asking that our blood not be shed in the street. You know what I'm saying? Like we're asking for actual tangible wins, physical systemic change, reparations, you know, things like that. <laughs> so all this other stuff to me, I'm like, it's cute, but it's not putting black people in this country in a different position. We're can still add, in a I, place to be martyred. Can I add to that very quickly? Yeah, absolutely. You, you brought up a good point about the Black, Live, Black Lives Matter murals all over the country. There's a bunch of them. And the first thing that I caught wind of when the one went up in D.C. and I went to college in D.C., the, the one thing that I thought was, all right, good, sensible thing to do. But did we ask for it very much like what you said? The second thing I said to myself was, I hope that this doesn't become a multiplier where you start seeing it everywhere. Because when you start seeing it everywhere, it will start to lose some of its impact. And then more importantly, 
it becomes a target. And if you notice, they become targets. I recently saw, and, and ironically, it is a, I would label her as a fundamentalist Christian conservative Republican black woman. I don't <laughs> remember her name, but she has made it a point. I reached out to her on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I've made it a point. She made it a point. Excuse me. She made it a point to, I'll use the word deface, to deface all of the ones that are local, New York, New Jersey, uh, you know, there's there's one there's one in New York City, there's one in Brooklyn, there's one in Harlem. She took black paint to all of them. And that's her tirade. That's what she wants to do. That's what she's focused on. But the fact that there's a physical representation of that terminology, that hashtag, there are a lot of people that one, don't understand it, and two, do not like it. So automatically that's going to cause you know, a backlash. And that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. Gray, I, I want to talk to you about Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, and when, when TL was talking about, uh, when, he, when he first brought it up, he put it in, in quotation marks. What are your thoughts about Black Lives Matter? And, I, and I'm being intentionally vague here. What are your thoughts about Black Lives Matter? <laughs> um, I also kind of still wanted to comment on whether or not it was oh, yeah. a distraction. Can I like weave, weave that, gonna weave that in? Absolutely, um, absolutely. But um, I kind of wanted to both like echo and sidestep a little bit, like the question or like the, res the responses in that like, I think that there's a really strong distinction or not strong, but a very critical distinction between the black activists making these moves and then the ways in which it gets magnified through quote unquote allies. Um, mm. I think that in a lot of ways, because I do think that we have to understand that activism and work can look like art, can look like creation, especially just from my experiences within like queer of color spaces, the ways in which we have come together through art and use that as a medium to create change is valuable. That is true. And also in another breath, understanding how movements get co-opted and we get offered what, I, um, I forgot who said it, but someone was talking about um, false solutions. This kind of latching on to the surface level of work that has actually had, it's kind of like an iceberg, that has had years and years of like, like movement towards these actions, and then they get co-opted by white folks or by like people who are allies. And so with, but also within activist spaces, from my experience of being like in these organizing spaces with the people creating these things, we also get caught with this, well, it feels like no matter what we do, as activists, it, it always ends up co-opted. It always ends up um, like under, like like taken up by corporate. And so I think that when we are talking about whether or not things are helpful or not, we have to also like balance this delicate relationship between the work that's being done and how it's being co-opted and also understand what are different tools of disidentifying with what's happening and subverting that. There are some ways to understand that like, okay, this might not have ended up how we intended. How do we take what's useful from this and create something anew and to constantly be in that form of adapt adaptation? 
I think is kind of like how we sidestep that conversation. That was something that I just, as someone who has been in these spaces on the other end of feeling at your wit's end, with no matter what you do, that's something that I really felt was like important to say. Um, and then like, and that also goes within like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, understanding that the movement fundamentally started as this like radically queer, black, like liberatory movement and then also has become a quick, easy hashtag that people try to do to like virtue signal that they're quote unquote woke. And I think that understanding the like core of where these movements start is to me more critical than focusing on how white people have co-opted them. And that includes like understanding the Black Lives Matter movement as like a formal movement as well as like the cultural concept. Okay. Uh, Nurse Tash, what are your thoughts on Black Lives Matter? Um, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Um, moving on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> but yeah, um, we actually, me and my co-host actually had a little tangent about Black Lives Matter and the movement and co-opting and all of that. This Past week or last week when we recorded, because um, there's been some talk about decentering the black father, kind of, um, and making it this um, or removing heteronormative standards and stuff like that. So, um, as an organization, I really don't have an opinion about what that organization um, hopes to do and how they move. I, I do feel like it's maybe been co opted because there's been some you know, donations by people who don't look like us. And I'm always gonna be skeptical of those things and always wonder like, okay, what is the ultimate goal of this at that, you know, at the core? But Black Lives Matter as a hashtag, I think it's very powerful. I think that no matter what happens with the organization itself, this hashtag, this statement is always gonna be triggering and triggering for black people and non-black people and will trigger different experiences across the spectrum. And so I love Black Lives Matter. I love the hashtag, um, the movement. I think that is necessary within the movement in our community. We're talking about um, police brutality and the things that are happening to our community. Also important when talking about the things within our community, which I don't usually like to discuss black issues in open forum but there is a space and a place where we need to be critical of our own selves and say, okay, if we're gonna be running around talking about Black Lives Matter, then what about our own Black lives that are being affected within our community? You know, where are the people who are standing up for each other to make sure that we can be good to each other and not see each other as threats and not see each other as punching bags or, you know what I'm saying? Where can we address our own internal trauma issues, things like that? Um, so that this hashtag or this movement holds more weight. I completely and 100% agree with you. I had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine. We were doing it through the, the text. And uh, he was saying, you know, you, you ever have one of those conversations where you don't really know if you're being trolled, right? So he's saying, he's saying <laughs> yeah. to me that, um, you know, people have a problem with the organization. Black Lives Matter we're talking about because of George Soros and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, what, 
what does that have to do with anything? I mean, the, the point is, is that the lives of black people matter. I don't know why that is, why that is a controversial statement. So I'm gonna share my screen here and really talk about what uh, Nurse Tash was saying here. So I know I'm probably gonna, gonna mess this up somehow, but we'll try to do the best I can here. Uh, you got let's see. I got, I got this, I did it before. <laughs> I did it before, so I can so I can do it again here, right? Uh, let's see. All right, let's see. Can you guys see that? Yes. No, 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 no. That's not what I want. Of course not. All right, let's let's remove that. <clears throat> Can you see that? No. All right, we're, we're not gonna, I, I can't do it then, so we'll stop that. So uh, let me just read something here from the Black Lives Matter. People have always been bringing this up and I'd like to go to TL for this and then um, this is gonna be right up uh, Gray's alley here. So when we talk about, um, when we talk about uh, taking fathers out the home and all this kind of stuff. So this comes directly from what we believe in the Black Lives Matter website. So uh, it says, we make our spaces family friendly and, and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages, that's in quotation marks, that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Um, so that is directly from this site there. I'd like to get your thoughts about that, TL. I'm gonna try to put it up here if I can again. Go ahead. So, so it's interesting you bring that up because I was having a conversation with someone about their page and that description. Mm. Someone asked me my, my thoughts on it earlier. And I, I, I have two thoughts on it. One from, from a, from a father patriarchal standpoint, not offended. I was, I was a little concerned um, that it seems to negate the black male, particularly the black father um, in their description. But then when I decided to dig a little deeper and have some, you know, have further conversations, I had to recognize there's a level with which I have to have an understanding. And that understanding really is around, and, and Gray brought it up earlier, it's, it's literally around what this original movement was about, okay? So it wasn't about black male <laughs> patriarchy okay and i understand that it's grown to be way bigger because it's been co-opted you know it's been hashtagged it's been moved around so in that regard i i, I kind of took my 
I, I kind of took my concern and slight offense off the table simply because I had to understand that this what what you know Black Lives Matter its original intent it's inclusive but it it says it very clearly it tries to it wants to break up Western uh, Western processes so if that's the case that includes the the patriarchy that that includes the black male father scenario here um will everybody agree with that no um will the co-opt you know with the co-opting of the movement the hashtag and everything else by default include us yeah it will um i it's funny because i literally just had this conversation like three days ago <laughs> I literally well, I, had it three days. I, I I just want to chime in here before I let Gray answer that. So I, I actually agree with you. I think that that was is the focus, right? So we look at, and I know that TL, you guys must cover this, and I know I've covered it, right? So we look at the at the importance of fathers, and we plan to have another separate conversation about that. We look at the importance of fathers, and if if your father's not in the home, then all these different negative things happen. To you, right? You're more likely children are more likely to drop out of uh, drop out of school suffer bad grades, right? Uh, live in poverty, all these different parameters. And so I think that that's part of what they're saying is they, they, they want to stop that, right? So, and so we are all, we're all in the village, right? Who my kids are taken care of by your kids, right? Uh, when I did my, 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 when I was going back to school, uh, doing my thesis, uh, we talked about this a little bit where we had, that was that one, that one lady who sat on the stoop, that old grandmother type figure who sat on the stoop and kind of looked out and, and would, would tell your, uh, you tell your mother if you didn't do X, you know, okay, I saw your son. He was over here where he shouldn't have been. Right. That's that, the windowsill. Or in the windowsill, right? On the stoop <laughs> in the windowsill. Absolutely. 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 And so when that when that figure was gone from the neighborhood, uh, who and and and, and what was what has replaced her has been, you know, don't tell me about my kids. Who do you think you are? Right. It's no longer that village type of mentality. And so I think that that's essentially what they're trying to break up. So it, it's it's a co-opting of the narrative of Black Lives. And I think that you're right, TL. It's a co-opting of the narrative of Black Lives that they want to that they just want to remove fathers from the home and all this kind of stuff. No, what they want to say is is that if a, something happens to a father, if he's incarcerated or he dies or, or whatever, that the village is there to step in and take care and take care of their responsibility. That's 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 my understanding of, of what they're trying to say. So I'd like to get Gray's Gray's uh, thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so I think it's important to really ground in the backgrounds of the creators of Black Lives Matter to understand that fundamentally at its root, it is a queer black movement started, like started by queer black folks. And so to bring in kind of a queer theory understanding of family and trauma and all of these, all of these situations, I think it's, I think it goes deeper than just one framing it as um black fathers in the sense that and this goes into like what is like what is hinted at when talking about like the western understanding of a nuclear family i think that there is a difference between traumas of losing kin that have been disproportionately black men and losing the idea of patriarchal understanding of a man as a provider because when we understand that what is traumatic and what has been a traumatic history throughout our lineage as descendants of slaves is a sort of breaking up of family. 
and understanding that that in and of itself, regardless of who it is, is going to be traumatic. But also understanding, and this particularly comes from queer communities, like the ideas of chosen family, reimagining family structure, all of this like creative cultural work that has come out of black queer folks that is oftentimes excluded from discussions of blackness and black community is we've had to reinvent how we understand family to begin with, to strive and not, and it's not even just a deficit, to me, in my experience as like a queer person, my understanding of chosen family that goes beyond the idea of a nuclear family has not just healed me in a lot of ways, but been a source of like radical liberation and a positionality to reimagine blackness in ways that are just, that I feel like are not oftentimes in the conversation. And so I think that that is what's trying to also get at understanding like what Black Lives Matter means by this is not to say that black men don't matter, but to understand that how do we distance the understanding and loss of black life, separate that from understanding the rules of patriarchy, and also understanding that disproportionately, black women do not get the same amount of attention when we are also subject to different forms of violence and not just police violence, but also medical violence, mental health violence, like the mental health system is a very carceral system. And we don't talk about uh, as much as the violence that affect queer, trans and femme people in our own community. And so that like disproportionate loss of voices is like the same way that like, Black feminists have made, like Black feminism specifically, our civil rights movements, like we oftentimes make Black specific spaces because we understand that white folks will never be in the positionality to understand our experiences and we as Black people need to be centered. We also have that problem within our movements as Black folks. And that's really where I think the origin of Black Lives Matter, why it's so important to understand that the creators were queer Black women. Um, and that, and all of that like, theoretical queer black background is a part of the foundation of the Black Lives Matter movement as it stands today. So uh, to anyone out there who has any questions or comments, uh, make sure that you shoot them to us. We've been on for about an hour now. I don't wanna hold my guests for too long. Uh, Elaine Williams said there's a, a need for a man to be in the home uh, still. So uh, I, that's her comment. So I wanna say hi to Hateable. Elaine. <laughs> What's that? That's debatable. Uh, hi to Sibine, Chris Casey and Sibine. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I really don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not today. I, I certainly don't mind it, uh, having that conversation, <laughs> but it would distract us from our distracting conversation. So we'll save that for another, for another, <laughs> for another. I definitely have you back. We can certainly talk about that. And I, I'm pretty sure that you and Gray can probably go on for hours about that particular. So. Um, <laughs> So uh, let me let's let's try to wrap this up here a little bit. What do we want, and uh, are we being distracted? And how do we get it? Where do we go from here? I'll start off with you, uh, Nurse. Where, where do we go from here? Um, everyone needs to know their role and play their position, because there's so many facets, layers, um, so many avenues where change needs to happen within this country where black people are oppressed, um, are being oppressed, are being killed. And I'm not just saying, you know, with a gun, <laughs> but there's so many different things that are um, 
playing into our demise in the United States. And I believe that anti-blackness and white supremacy is global. But in the United States, it is just a different animal. And so there are so many different avenues, you know, when you're talking about white supremacy and how we're being programmed every single day. So I think the first thing to do is decolonize our own thoughts about everything and question everything um, and challenge everything and don't take anything because that's the way it's been done. That's what, you know, Big Mama said or whatever. Everything is up for debate. Um, and from there, we start to look for the actual change. And we as a people have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, so we can't, you know what I'm saying to you, you're chuckling because you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like um, we can't be like, oh, this is an issue and then be stuck on that and then feel like we can put this other thing down. We have to be able to be multifaceted. And like I said, people, whatever your strengths are, you do your part in this arena and TL, you do your part in this arena and I'll be fighting for mamas at the bedside and the hospital. And we all need to work as a collective and have a common goal set. And so the lawmakers, y'all do y'all part. The protesters, y'all do y'all part. You know what I'm saying? We all need to get on the same page, on code, on message to move everything forward. T.O. I'll add to that. I agree with you. Everyone needs to play their position. I absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, we We have to stop for lack of a better term, falling for the banana in the tailpipe. And what that means is, and this goes back to the, the theme of this show, are we being distracted? Absolutely. Someone can throw something at us in the media, and in many instances, we latch on to it, and we continue that conversation that takes us down distraction lane. Um, we also need to be more inclusive in understanding everyone's thought processes and everyone's end goal here and and much to grace uh you know thoughts and and statements earlier we tend as a community to not include the 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 and forgive me i always get it wrong the L- lgbt community i get I always, it messed up too and i'm a i'm a queer activist <laughs> okay all right i don't feel so bad now but we, i just we stopped have, i just just the lgbt <laughs> I, I just stopped there I just, right so we need to understand because, you know, and, and Gray made great points. There are many things that go on within her community and that community that we don't pay attention to that actually have bearing on the things that happen to us as well. Um, do we need to be more in, uh, included on in the, the corporate space and the executive and the C-suite space? Absolutely. Does that mean that we play to their rules? Yes and no. Sometimes we have to play the game to get there. But once we get there and the door is open, then it becomes our conversation to to be had for them to understand what the differences are. We also need to understand history. We also need to uh, inclusively in our culture, we have to understand history, not just ours, but everyone else's as well. So we can have a truly informed conversation about what the future looks like, because history always repeats itself. It always repeats itself. And and very quickly, I'll say something that's very interesting. I, I say to my son, again, nine years old, in school, they don't teach cursive writing anymore. 
but I taught my son cursive writing for a very, very important reason. And that reason is if he doesn't understand it, there is a lot of history that's written in old English and cursive that he'd never be able to understand. And that takes that effort within itself allows him a liberty that some people are not going to get anymore. And he's going to be able to see history and read some history that some other people won't be able to. Also, that history itself, and, I'm, and I don't want to go too far off, off base here, that history itself is all being digitized as well, which means it can always be changed. So we have to stay on, on point with that as well. So let's not, you know, let's not be distracted. There's a lot that we want. Black fathers want to be seen as black fathers. Black mothers want to be seen as black mothers. People, black people don't want to be seen as criminals. We want, we don't want to be myopic. You know, we have everybody under the sun you can think of. Black corporates, black nerds, you know, your black gays, everything. We need to understand that and embrace it all in order for us to move forward. Very good. What do we want? How do we go from here? Great. I think that one major, or I guess like two major things, and this is also echoing what um, Tosh meant, that we need to really center decolonizing how we understand ourselves and understand our oppression, because I think that is something that we as Black folks don't talk about. And to really understand how everything works in our society, we have to look at the interplay between colonization, capitalism, and anti-Blackness. And that includes Indigenous folks as well. Um, and I think in addition to that, going forward, what our part of what our role to do, because I think it's really easy for us as Black folks, because there is, there is a truth to it that I, I fundamentally do think that anti-Blackness is one of the foundational, one of the foundational oppressions throughout the world. That being said, each of us individually hold different positionalities to power and power over others. So I think another aspect is understanding our power and how we inflict it over other people and also understanding really and working through the healing aspect of what we are doing, both how we engage with our activism, how we engage with traumatizing content, how we engage with each other. All of that goes into a lot of this trauma work that I think a lot of us don't really have the like emotional vocabulary and emotional way with and like experience with to really go through. And it's hard, it is hard and it burns you out when you go through this sort of activism and this work without doing that foundational groundwork to heal. Very good, very good. So I wanted to thank uh, some people who for their comments, Relaine Williams for commenting, Marlene said good show, good cast, uh, Chris Casey, uh, said uh, Nurse Tash is right on point when she said one should avoid unnecessary exposure to trauma, wise words, insightful viewpoints. Thank you all. Thank you so much for all of them uh, chiming in. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to try to wind it down here. Um, so next week I'm going to have a firefighter on and we're going to talk about uh, his journey into what I've been doing recently and that is whole food plant-based diet and changing up my, my eating habits, lost 15 pounds in a few in a few weeks. Uh, so just, uh, it's been really, really good. So we're gonna talk about my experience as a police officer, firefighters gonna come on. A lot of times uh, cops and firefighters, people don't know that, but they're always kind of at each other. 
Uh, so we're going to have a good conversation and we're going to enjoy each other. Um, so I do have some episodes coming up about what Nurse Tash said. Uh, Tosh, Nurse Tosh said about, <laughs> about, about uh, looking at ourselves, about looking at ourselves and dealing with the, with the, some of the stuff that we got going on in our in our communities, right? Uh, we can't, you know, a lot of times I focus on what cops, 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 cops got to do. But listen, we got to look into ourselves, right? I believe it was Elijah Muhammad said, before we look at others, we got to look at ourselves. Sorry. I, I believe that strongly. Um, so I want to thank everyone for t coming on and we're going to switch gears right now. So if you guys want to keep on listening, that's, that's great. But, uh, I asked nurse, uh, nurse Tosh, T Tosh, yes, nurse Tosh <laughs> to, to expound upon her comments, uh, about, uh, a father in the home. So we're going to switch gears. So if anybody wants to drop off and not be, I, I, I feel, I feel an argument coming on here. So, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> so, for me? so I, <laughs> no, maybe for me, maybe for me, <laughs> okay, but, but, okay. But, but go, but go ahead. But we we'll listen, I, I still love you after we all black lives still matter after all this. So we, we Absolutely. <laughs> all black so. lives matter. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I just feel like, um, having a man in the home is kind of a misnomer at times. And it's an old school way of thinking because it stops right there. Um, having a well, man in the home, having a safe man in the home, having a, you know, provider, um, someone who can be sensitive, who knows what manhood can look like in all facets. You know what I'm saying? It, to me, is not just having a body in the home and having an unwell mother, an unsafe mother can produce the same result. And that's, that's my opinion on that. Like, yes, a two-parent home is ideal um, if both parents are well in all ways. You know, and nobody is going to be perfect, but what, what's the benefit in having two abusive parents in a home? Are you still well, better off than me in a single-parent home where my mother is a conscious parent? where she's more self-reflective and how she raises me, where she can pull in the village. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we have to stop hanging our hat on these one one liners and being that like letting that be the end of the conversation. We need to go deeper. We are a very complex people. We've had a very unique experience within this country. And we need to start speaking to those things that um, that drive who we are and the way we behave and the way we raise our children and all of those things. It's not just that one. Yes, we need men in the home. Yes, we need a man who's going to be the things that we need them to be. Same thing as, you know, having a woman or a mother. And then, you know, Grace talked about a non-traditional family or, you know, what we might call a non-traditional family. Is your children well? Are they healthy? Are they loved? <laughs> you know? I'm very disappointed. I thought I was going to have to argue. Oh, <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with any, with anything you said. So you're absolutely yeah. right. A, a, a body in the home who's not providing, who's abusive, who's uh, addicted, and all this kind of other kind of negative stuff that you know, absolutely. Yeah, who's you're disconnected? Absolutely. Who's vacant? Right, you know. Right. right. I like, can how remember. Does that help? Right, right, right. And I, I remember, you know, when I was going, when I was a young father, you know, I was 23, 24 or something like that. And so um, I thought to myself that, um, 
you know, you know, being in the being a police officer, right? So I saw, uh, I grew up in a church, and I also saw uh, how absent a lot of uh, preachers were, a lot of ministers were, right? Because they're out preaching all over, all over the place, and there was always this saying that uh, preachers' kids are the worst kids, right? So to me, I didn't see any difference between the preacher who's out doing the good thing, right? Preaching all over the state, all over the country, but he's yet yet, yet never home dealing to attending to his own children. And then uh, go, when I went to work and I was, uh, you know, seeing a police officer and saw people who uh, weren't in the home, uh, you know, fathers hanging out two, three o'clock in the morning. I worked the midnight shift. So I'm, if I'm seeing you, <laughs> you're obviously not home. Right. Obviously. Right. Um, so so there was no difference in in the, the type of work that you, that you did or did not do in, the, in your lack of being home. Uh, and taking care of business. So, so I have to say that I wholeheartedly agree. And uh, I'm sorry that I could not provide the argument. Uh, <laughs> I probably would have kicked off the, the, the but I, but I absolutely agree with you. It, it's, it's absolutely necessary. So TL, any, any words as a black dad there? Any, any, any words? So no, I, I don't disagree at all. Um, the physical presence of a man is not enough. Um, you have to be engaged. Um, and, 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 you know, from my own experience, I understand how a father cannot be in a home. So I've, I've, you know, I grew up both in a two parent household and a one parent household. Um, and one of the things I'm very sensitive to, and I, I had my son, uh, nine years ago when I was 40. And the reason he showed up so late was because I had to mature and I didn't want to raise a child not understanding or for lack of a better term, cycling through some of the trauma that I had growing up. So my father was much like me and, and I see it in my son. I'm a very driven individual. My father was a very driven individual. Sometimes that comes at the expense of others around you. And that was an expense for me, my sister, my mother, he wanted to get to a place and we and, and this happens in our community a lot where people say, you know, I don't want to get married till I get to this place or I don't want to have kids. Till I get to this place. My father did those things while he was getting to his place with us there and it became, you know, it, it became an expense to us. Um, so I'm very sensitive to those things. I'm sensitive to those type of conversations. And as a father, I'm sensitive to it as well, because I have a nine year old who, and I, and I get it now, like I get why I felt the way I did as a kid wanting to see my father so much be under, you know, be under his, you know, under his, uh, coattails, you know, dragging around. I get it. I don't think my son sees me as a hero. He might, I don't know, but I know he, he sees a lot in me and what I do. So I'm very sensitive in that realm to make sure that if I can't give you time now, Case in point, I'll give you a perfect example. Finished dinner. He was like, hey, do you want to play Monopoly? Because we had to finish a game that got cut off last night. And I said, no, dude, unfortunately, I got to I gotta do a, a podcast. He's like, you doing your own? It's like, no, I'm going to somebody else. He's like, you're famous? I'm like, no, I'm not famous. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm helping the community out. So as we were sitting here talking, I recognize I'm thinking about time. And I said to myself, I have to look at my entire schedule tomorrow. And I have to parse out that piece of time for Monopoly, however long that may be, because that little bit will take me far. Right. Okay. Yeah. It'll take me far. So 
the physical presence going back to you know your point the physical presence of a male in in the household is not enough um our community sometimes doesn't even understand fatherhood some of us not all of us some of us don't even understand what fatherhood is what that responsibility really means i'll say it myself i had to figure it out you know there was not that my father just completely disappeared into the ether but he was in his own in his own world my parents separated they eventually got divorced i became a de facto kind of see you when i see you son <laughs> kind of you know kind of kid and i didn't have that presence on a consistent basis in the home did i pick things up absolutely did my father and i as two adult males become father and son over time absolutely that's a maturity thing i had to mature myself to understand this is my father Here's what he's imparted in me. And also, as you get older, you figure out, all right, well, yeah, I just act like you. I do this. I do that. Um, so in the end, I, I completely agree. It's not just the physical presence to say, oh, I'm married or I have I have a man. He's in the home. We're all good. That's not what it's about. Absolutely. Great. Did you have some comments? Yeah. Um exactly what her, what her uh, doctoral thesis was was right it's probably exactly it um, <laughs> so, no not not my thesis but it was like one of the core parts of one of uh, my classes I, I, that I took. i'm sure it was i'm sure um, it was. <laughs> i i think like the non-delicate way of saying it is that i think that in the most like radical form, no. But understanding under understanding that it's not saying no as in like black men and black fathers aren't important or that we don't have a serious complicated relationship in our community to fatherhood and masculinity and all of these other things. So I think that is absolutely true in our community and I think it's something that we need to address. But I do think we limit ourselves sometimes in how we frame it. I think that, and like I preface this from coming from a place where I know that I have had a lot of paternal trauma in my family and kind of exactly what um, Tosh was saying was like, it's not just about, you know, having a body in the home. When I look through the generations, there've been a lot of like paternal figures in, in my family that were they were there providing everything and no relationship. I've also, in my own experience, not had um, a relationship because of different traumas. And I've also seen how to become a fully realized person in the absence of that and the specific lessons and nuances that I've gained. And also understanding how does this conversation kind of extrapolate when we go beyond how we understand like a traditional nuclear family. And I think that there's a danger in framing it as a standard because that closes the ways in which we understand how do we heal and come into community. If we only understand community and childhood wellness through having a father and a mother or two parents and how we understand kinship, is already fundamentally entrenched within white supremacist understandings of family. If we understand like our historical and ancestral ties have very complicated relationships to kinship. How do we understand family? How do we understand care? So this is not to say that 
there needs to be a complete absence of even like a masculine or paternal figure in family life but how we have in relationship to that it's different and that's something that i've definitely learned in understanding chosen family as well because we think about all different kinds of family and also when i think about the types of oppression that i face within the black family as a queer person and in my communities it always comes back to well, what about the family what about the kids there's no like man in the situation or there's two men or or like how can you be trans all of these other things that are around a very narrow understanding of gender and roles and care, I think that we as a people are way more complicated than that. So we have to, I think that we have to find the balance between what is at the core of what we conceptualize fatherhood and how does that manifest within our communities and how do we plug up those so-called holes because that might not necessarily look the same way in every situation. And we do also have to contend with the fact that there is a very gendered trauma that happens in our community. There is a definitely an impact of locking up men in prison. Like that, that has an impact on our community, definitely. But I think the solution is so much bigger and so much more diverse than just simply we have to have more fathers in the community. It's like, yes, and, yes, and we have to reimagine how we understand fatherhood. Yes, and we have to reimagine how we understand parenting and care and how does this manifest across genders. And so that's kind of where I stand and why sometimes my like most immediate, like extreme, like, like manifestation of that is like, no, but it's a way more nuanced conversation. Yeah, so I see, uh, so, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts while you were kind of going through that, but uh, um, but I think that a lot of the traumas that you were facing or that you mentioned, I, I think that they that they shape how we look at it, shape how we look at fathers being in the home. I think that we're all in agreement that good, positive role models uh, should be in our homes and in our communities. I think we're all in agreement about that, right? No one is saying we ought to have deadbeats or people and or I don't think that people are saying that um, just because you are, uh, just because you have a different type of family or traditional family that you should be ignored or put aside or, or called not real or have kids ripped away from you or can't adopt kids and all that kind of stuff. So. I thought I was actually going to argue with you a little bit more too, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you guys are really, really not making it easy here. So, uh, but, uh, but I think that, I think there were, I, I, at least I'm in agreement that, you know, good, strong fathers who actually are in the home, who actually are productive, as TL said, productive with their time playing Monopoly, even when you're tired and don't feel like it, you know, and Monopoly takes some, I, I used to have put, put time limits. Listen, it's two hours and that's it. That's that's it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think that that's all important. And if uh, things don't work out, and yeah, we do have a, a varied history and trauma that we're trying to deal with. And I think the good fathers, uh, like TL, is trying to be, and like I try to be, uh, that you take the time out for your children, uh, that you mature before you bring ch children into the world, uh, is essential, and that helps to break. That helps to break the cycles of trauma that, that uh, Dre, you were talking about. And so we have to deal with it, look at, look at it in the face and say, this is what I've been through. I don't wanna put anyone else through that. And so here's how I'm going to break the trauma and cycles in my own life. So if more people thought like TL, uh, I think that we'd have a lot better fathers 
in our in our homes in our communities. But TL and I and opinionated black dads are going to have this conversation another date another time. I'm going to have uh, cool. Nurse Tash, Tosh, and we're going to talk about COVID and her being a being uh, uh, you know uh, consciously sedated nurse, whatever that would mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh I'm looking forward to having Gray back on as well. Uh my man um Peo Dieters has said we do family game night and I have teenagers, one just graduated. Yeah, that's important. Sometimes, you know, when the kids got bigger, man, I was we were having game nights and I was like, come on, guys, you know, because it, they're bigger and they're competitive. Like what <laughs> the heck, man. You know, first you first get, of all, and Ray, bruised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's one thing when you're beating them up and they're eight and nine years old, but but now you know they're 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 15 and they're winning that monopoly. It's like, all right, now all right, game's over, game's over. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so all that all that is important. So um, uh, so I thank everyone for for joining in. I am going to leave it here. We've been on an hour and a half. Thank you so much to the podcast hosts. Thank you once again. I want to give you guys a chance to plug your podcast. And um, I will, and you guys definitely will be back. So uh, we'll start off with you, uh, Black Tea Speaks. There, Greg, go ahead. Um, so yeah, I just want to plug in. I have a pod, a radical lifestyle podcast that focuses on healing justice, disability justice, queerness, and activism, queerness, transness, indigeneity, and blackness, and providing tools to kind of navigate this current moment. Tio. Uh, the Opinionated Black Dads podcast uh, every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, we cover everything from current events, entrepreneurship, mentorship, uh, anything under the sun, and we're opinionated about it. <laughs> Nurse Tosh. Well, I am um, a host of a show called Conscious Sedation. We can be found on any podcast platforms or wherever you get your podcast um, at Conscious Sedation on Instagram at Conscious Sedation. Same thing on Facebook and Twitter. We do take questions. So if you have any questions for us, we can be reached at GetSedated705 at gmail.com. Very good. And I just want to give another shout out to uh, uh, Pale Dieters here. Uh, he also has a podcast. He doesn't want to talk about it. So uh, it's called uh, Black Black in Blue. Black in Blue uh, podcast. He talks to a number of other police officers about their experiences being black and is also wearing blue. So that's uh, that's his podcast. So he says, my wife's 21-year-old nephew started staying with us and haven't gotten and he's gotten into it because he's never had that in his life. And my kids, mm -hmm. would, my kids would have their friends come over sometimes, you know, and they would be looking forward to it too. And that's that, that's that, uh, that's that village that we're talking about. Right? Yeah. right. Right. So you take in people and this, this is the village that's going on and they love it. And, you know, if you give them something to do, then, then they'll, then they'll certainly, uh, uh, be, be a part of that. So I want to remind everyone. Uh, so next week we have a fireman coming on and also I have another episode that I'm going to release to the audio, audio and YouTube podcast where I talk to a dietitian. Uh, but the whole food plant-based diet. So we're going to be speaking about that, the whole food plant-based diet. I'm going to upload that to YouTube. And then next week we'll have the live broadcast in which uh, I'm going to be talking to the fireman and talk about his journey into the whole food plant-based diet. So tune in for that next week. Guys, thank you so much for being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Great conversation. And uh, I'm sorry we couldn't get into an argument, but I got to agree with you guys. So, so. <laughs> Thanks you guys, for having us. <laughs> all right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys take care. Much love and peace. You too. Thank you. You too.